0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with and Naren. On the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're privileged to be joined by Dr. Tony Weeks. Tony was the Director of Anesthesia at the Alfred Hospital and has dealt with addiction and its manifestations on and off for, for years, both in seeing colleagues and treating colleagues with addiction, as well as some work in the medically supervised injecting room. So he's got a vast repertoire of experience. So we're privileged to have Tony today. And Tony, to open off this episode, could I ask you, when was your first experience dealing with addiction or substance use disorders in in your professional life? Well, it's a long time
1: ago now. I was a young director of anaesthetics at the Alfred, and one of our really good registrars came back for his final year of training. And we just noticed that there was the occasional pethidine ampoule in the change rooms in theatres, and we found a few butterfly needles around theatre. And looking closely, um, my my deputy had done some training in the United States where drug addiction and anaesthetics was much more recognised as a problem. Um, And we looked at the drug books, and it was pretty clearly obvious that this registrar was signing up much more pethidine than one might have expected for the work he was doing. Uh, he was also getting drugs by being really good at giving tea breaks to other people. So he'd go and give the anaesthetist a tea break, and while he was there, sample some of the drugs that would really relieve them of some of the drugs that they had drawn up ready to give to patients. There were no patients that came to harm from it, but we, we, it became obvious that this registrar was using pethidine, and. We sort of had a, a structured intervention because the experience in the United States was that very commonly anesthetists in this situation would simply go and take an overdose uh, because if they're going to have to stop work, you're depriving them of access to their source of drugs and that's a massive thing for them to face. So we tried to get him into inpatient treatment, uh, but he said all the right things to the treating doctor and was allowed to go home. And after a couple of months of absence from work and attending attendance of treatment, uh, he came back to see me with a letter from the treating doctor who I, was a very highly respected specialist, a senior respected specialist. And the letter said he could come back to work, uh, including handling opioids and without restrictions. Um, I think that that's something that would happened differently today. Anyway, he came back to work and all was well for a couple of months. Then we realised that he'd relapsed and was signing out large quantities of pethidine again. And so again, we intervened and went back to the doctor and he said all the right things. So there was no way he could be held in involuntary care. Uh, he was home for a couple of weeks and then he left a note saying that by the time his wife read the note, he'd be dead in the residence quarters at the Alfred. And, and he was right in that. Um, it wasn't an accidental overdose, it was a very deliberate end of life um, and a, a tragic event. And it turned out that he had hepatitis C. Excuse me. So, when he was found in the residence quarters and the residents who were there at the residence quarters for a party on the Friday night uh, attempted resuscitation, I then had to tell them all that he had hepatitis C. So, if you've had contact with blood or done mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, you need to get tested and be careful looking into it. And that was a tragic end. I ended up explaining that to the coroner at some length a year or so later. And the coroner, to her credit, recognised the difficulties in treating a doctor like that uh, and made some recommendations that I think have been supportive of the Victorian Doctors' Health Programme. But the whole situation really underlined the dilemma for the treating doctor whose interest has to be their patient and it's in that patient's interest to get back to work, to resume life as a a specialist anaesthetist. Although the statistics from the United States say that anaesthetists who go back to work do present with a one in six uh, with death Uh, one in six present with death as their initial symptom of relapse. So the best thing might be for them going back to work, but it's a little bit like offering them Russian roulette where the one in six chance of presenting with death as the sign of relapse. On the other hand, we don't know what the risks are if they don't go back to work. If that carrot isn't there uh, to get treatment and uh, be in recovery or controlled state so that they're able to go back to work, then the death rate may be much worse than one in six. Uh, So we we really don't know what's in their best interest.
0: It's an interesting question, isn't it? And it's somewhat of a vexed question in that doctors with substance use disorders present a unique challenge in many respects, because if we acknowledge that substance use disorder is, is an illness, we have to treat people who are ill. And there are a lot of medical conditions that are not curative but are chronic conditions that need to be monitored but then how do you safeguard the the patient's right to be treated and have an illness versus protecting the public how do you juggle the dynamic of treating a doctor and how how do you monitor for for safety as well these are these are all kind of complicated questions aren't they Tony
1: I think they're extremely complicated. I think I think it's a fascinating point that until... So one point is protecting the patients who may come to harm if the doctor isn't functioning at their, at their highest level or if the doctor's stealing the opioids from which they get post-operative analgesia. But until the relatively recent tragedy in Melbourne where... A drug-addicted doctor managed to transmit hepatitis C to a number of patients. There hadn't, to my knowledge, been recorded cases of harm coming to patients as a result of having been treated by a doctor who was using opioids. Now, most of the doctors who are addicted to opioids use them to feel normal, uh, and if they're at work, they, they function normally if they've got the right amount of opioid on board. Um, I don't want to give the impression that there are a whole lot of opioid-addicted doctors at work. Um, That's certainly not what I'm suggesting. But in that situation, if they're having opioids, they function quite normally. Um, And it's, it's a real dilemma in keeping patients safe. The other thing that I think is very different now is we've got long-acting injectable buprenorphine as a treatment option. So perhaps a drug-addicted doctor would be best on a good dose of buprenorphine, which would protect them uh, and protect the clients. Once they realise that there's absolutely no point uh, in using opioids on top of the buprenorphine, they won't get nothing for it, then the patient's are safe. So as, as long as the keep, doctor kept up to date with the buprenorphine, but that wasn't a treatment option available at the time.
0: And it's, it's a, a sad thing as well that, that doctors who do have substance use disorders not only have to deal with this illness, but they also have to deal with, with the regulatory body to disclose to other people, disclose to colleagues, and face having restrictions placed on their licence, which is done in the interest of patient safety. But will impact your livelihood. There's still a lot of stigma around substance use disorders and addiction, and it, it doesn't necessarily stop the, the whispers in the corridors or, or 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 those kind of judgments, unfortunately. And it can be quite brave coming out with these kind of um, declarations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, and and I think the fact that you know, it would be nice to think that health professionals would avoid stigma, that that they wouldn't stigmatise other health professionals because they have an illness. And yet, clearly, in medicine, there is great stigma. Um, and you know, in some ways, you can understand it, uh, the fear of it. The people, people are scared of people who use drugs. Um, and it doesn't feel right to have doctors who are opioid addicted. But that's part of the, that's, that's part of the sad reality of life, that it does happen. And there are, um, there are many doctors who have been through that process and who have made very significant contributions to medicine after dealing with their
0: addiction. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned this unfortunate, tragic case that you first dealt with at the Alfred. After that incident and your dealings with the coroner, did you have any further dealings with with dealing with... Um, both patients or colleagues with substance use disorders and did you do any further work or or research into this area?
1: Yes, well, I followed on with looking at um, drug addiction in anaesthetic registrars, people who were training for the Australian New Zealand College of Anesthetists and did a survey of departments to see their experience because it just wasn't something that had been talked about in Australia. And it turned out that On the basis of the survey, we came to the figure that 1.3% of those who entered anaesthetic training in Australia and New Zealand um, became addicted or presented with opioid addiction during their training. And shortly after that was published, I was invited to a breakfast in Melbourne where there were another eight or ten people who hadn't come to the attention of the departments they were working at in that time, but who had become addicted to opioids. And so I could confidently say the figure was much closer to 2% of those who entered training rather than the 1.3% who entered training. And that's a pretty frightening figure. Um, you know, it means each each you know, reasonable size anaesthetic department might take five trainees a year can expect to have someone become addicted every 10 years. Um, And it happens more often than that. Uh, There were a number of other registrars who became addicted in my time. One presented with epilepsy as as a result of taking sort of two grams of pethidine a day. Um, A couple of others started using propofol. And I think that it's now true that fentanyl and propofol have overtaken uh, it's, it's a toss-up between fentanyl and propofol mm. as the drug that anaesthetists are more likely to become addicted to.
0: And ultimately, after after your long um, career in anaesthetics, uh, you retired, and to ease into retirement, you you decide to volunteer at the uh, medically supervised injecting room. Can I can I ask um, what what uh, what brought that idea and that course of action to, to 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 mind for you? Had you had much treatment or had you had much dealing with with patients who had um, addiction issues and were you ever a primary treater of people with um, addiction issues?
1: Well, I think as an anaesthetist, I, like many other anaesthetists, uh, dreaded the day when we had to anaesthetise an opioid-addicted person for major surgery because post-operative analgesia was always such a problem. Um, And I think... My experience in public hospitals was something I'm a bit ashamed of, that I don't think we were very good at dealing with addicted people when they came to hospital. Um, And my impression is that public hospitals are still pretty bad at it. And I think private hospitals are possibly even worse, but don't see as many people in that situation. Um, But I'd retired and I thought, I want to find something useful to do uh, but I wasn't sure what, um, and six months after I retired, the injecting room opened. I was sort of getting bad press before it opened, and it, I lived close by, so I thought I'd like to see if I can help in some way. Nico Clark was kindly uh, most welcoming to me, um, and initially I just sat around, he said, just sit around in the injecting room and see what you can do to help. And so part of it was helping the staff gain confidence in dealing with overdoses, Part of it was helping clients who are having trouble finding veins. And that might seem counterintuitive as a, as a helpful and useful thing to do. But if someone's you know, getting into withdrawal and getting agitated because they're getting uncomfortable in withdrawal when they're having trouble finding veins, they end up with lots of needles and lots of blood-soaked cotton balls around, um, a lot of discarded needles, And all those needles provide a risk of needle stick injury to the staff. So it was nice to be able to settle that down by helping people from time to time, even though they were way, way better at injecting, the majority way, way better at finding small veins than I could. Um, And the other thing was taking blood to test people for hepatitis C. Uh, And a lot of people, there was was one that stands out who had a pathology slip for 18 months Um, and had been to a number of different collection services, but the phlebotomists would have two goes at taking blood and then say, we'll have to come back another time. Uh, And we were able to take blood from him. And he turned out to have hepatitis C and got treated uh, with treatment initiated at the injecting room. So there are those things. And then um, when the long-acting injectable buprenorphine became available, Nico asked if I'd be prepared to work rather than volunteer and start at the clinic. That was to start the clinic at the injecting room. And that was a, an incredibly rewarding thing to do. It was a little bit intimidating because I had no experience in prescribing methadone, uh, but buprenorphine was much better to prescribe from my point of view. And I think it was a fascinating segue that having sat with people in the injecting room and helped them try and find a vein when they were having real trouble finding a vein, that opened up a trusting relationship between the client and me. And sometimes it was the real difficulty in finding a vein that made them seek treatment and say, well, maybe I should go on the injection so I don't have to inject anymore. Um, and that was that was the start of injectable buprenorphine for a lot of the clients in the early days. The ones that I'd got to know from having trouble injecting decided to get help, um, and so that they didn't need to inject anymore.
0: Can I ask you how you felt about being uh, a, a, for lack of a better term, a, a vein finder for patients who were struggling to find veins? We've talked in um, previous episodes on the podcast about harm reduction and how it can actually appear on a spectrum. For a lot of doctors who, who believe in harm reduction, some might feel a bit squeamish or or be taken aback about trying to assist someone who is um, trying to inject drugs. Find find a vein. What what, what are your thoughts on on that, Tony?
1: It's a, it's a fascinating one, and it's something I had. Um, I did a fair bit, fair bit of thinking about, but I think when you, having sat in the injecting room and seen people get so distressed, and you know that that's not the day they're going to decide not to use heroin ever again. They're going to need some sort of treatment, but you know, even if they were to say, "I give up now," you know, can I have some methadone? It's about Getting a permit and getting them started on methadone, and they're not going to be able to increase the methadone dose quickly enough to avoid withdrawal. So those, they're still going to need to inject, or they might be in, get into really severe withdrawal and then be able to have buprenorphine. Um, but it's a matter of getting the getting the permit, and I don't think that time of distress is a good time to have a conversation with a client about starting pharmacotherapy. So I think the compassionate view is that uh, what I, what I, the way I, I approached it was that to help them through that difficult time was one of the steps in gaining their trust, where if they then wanted to seek help with other things, um, they had a doctor that they could trust to talk to who wasn't going to lecture them that they shouldn't be doing it because that doctor had actually... You know, guided them and helped them find a vein, so it was it was part of establishing trust and part of just being compassionate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and I don't think they're I don't think they're bad things for a doctor to do.
0: No, I think uh, approaching um, life and and the patients we deal with from a viewpoint of compassion is something that we should all strive for. Um, and realizing that we all have you know our own different journeys and paths that we've been on. But also, I guess to, to ask you about your experience uh, within the injecting room, there must have been some confronting things that you saw, but also some, some heartening things. Are there any standout memories that, that you've taken back or things that still stick with you to this day?
1: Oh, look, one, of, one of the highlights was very early in the days of the injecting room. And it sounds, sounds wrong to call it a highlight. The overdose wasn't the highlight. A guy took a significant overdose and was apnec for 15 minutes. he the, the protocol is that people are, have assisted ventilation um, for five minutes, and if they're not breathing, then they get a small dose of naloxone. Uh, and we're only using, usually, I'm using 400 micrograms of naloxone at a time um, to make sure that we didn't wake people up too quickly and have them feeling ripped off that they were you know, they just had some heroin and then they are in withdrawal. So it was gentle doses of naloxone. But this guy was unconscious on the floor for over 15 minutes and then woke up reasonably quickly and left. And he walked around to the front of the injecting room and asked the staff at reception to pass on his thanks to the people who looked after him in the overdose. And that was a real light bulb moment that the people who inject drugs are appreciative and uh, good, good people. Um, it's just that they happen to use drugs and that, that's something that I get emotional about each time I mention it um, it was just a beautiful thing for this person to come around and ask to per, for them to pass his thanks on uh, but there, there are lots of other stories of people who um, you know, that shared the way they started using drugs the difficulty they had trouble stopping using drugs I think listening to, one of the privileges was listening to the First Nations people. There's quite a big Aboriginal community that use the injecting room. And to get their sense of loss, their sense of invasion, um, to understand the intergenerational trauma. Now, there are people there who are stolen generation and children of stolen generation. And to understand that a little bit more than I had ever Felt before, and and you know I get really annoyed now when people criticize people taking the time to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land, because I think that's just one small thing we can do to show some respect for the people that we've displaced, Uh, and and so it's something I think is really important at the start of meetings that we do that. but to, to get that sense of the people you know, sitting on the mound outside the injecting room and they are home and their connection with the land, um, even though it's surrounded by a whole lot of ugly concrete towers, they, they really feel that that's their land. And it, it's so... And to understand their indignation when they're asked to move on, when they're simply sitting on their land, uh, I think that's... You know, hearing the stories that allowed me to understand that um, has been an enormous
0: privilege. Absolutely, and I think um, I'm I'm always taken aback by when a patient shares their stories, and and you listen to to the lives uh, a lot of our patients patients have lived, and some of the trauma, as you mentioned, that people have gone through. And, and you realise that there, there, there is not a lot that separates uh, all of us. In, in many respects, um, mm. we just haven't had, say, the same experiences. Um, or, or yeah. so far. and
1: I, I think, sorry, the, the other to cut you off. The, the other thing that really struck me is the number of people who have stories of being sexually abused as children, and you know, there's no group that's got a monopoly on it, uh, and there's no group that it's that, that are, are immune from it. It seems, and it's much more widespread than I had ever appreciated. Um, it's, yeah, it's 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 just something that is way more common, uh, and I had never understood that that's such a significant component for a whole lot of people who inject drugs. Uh, it's it's a pretty common thread um, that surprised me when it that sort of emerged from time to time. There are all sorts of other things going on. But that's, you know, the sexual abuse of children is something that the whole community needs to do something more about.
0: Indeed. And and I think as the research that's already out there and is continuing to be provided about adverse childhood experiences, um, spearheaded by Felidia Al, I think, in the in the 80s, it just shows that these, these traumas that happened really early in life, be it sexual abuse... Um, uh, domestic violence, etc., just unfortunately can follow you throughout life. Um, but to segue slightly and to talk about your experience as a prescriber in the injecting room, how, how did you find that? You, you mentioned um, uh, briefly a bit earlier on, um, after a bit of time in, in the actual injecting room, you started providing opioid substitution therapy for patients. How, what was your experience with that? Um, it was a
1: it was a real journey for me. Um, and I think that I was coloured in the way I've approached it um, because of having the harm reduction approach in the injecting room, and also being struck by the contrast between hospital medicine and harm reduction medicine. You know, as an anaesthetist in a hospital, you know, when people go into a hospital and they're going to have an operation, they've been the surgeons told them what operation they're going to have. Uh, they turn up, sign a consent form to agree to what they've been told is going to happen. And then, particularly as an anaesthetist, once you're into someone unconscious, they're not engaged in their treatment at all. The anaesthetist has complete control over what's happening to them. Absolute contrast in the injecting room where the clients choose their own drugs, what they think they're going to inject. The staff stand by in a sort of Close catching position in case something goes wrong, and then sort out the overdose if necessary later. In pharmacotherapy, it really struck me that there was the there are different approaches to it. That it can either be doctor centric, as in I am the wise doctor who is prescribing this medicine, and you will take it as I say, as the old hospital approach to, to life or a harm reduction approach, which I see as much more collaborative with the client. And it was very much a team approach. Um, the nurses were fantastic and the harm reduction practitioners in their knowledge of the clients and their ability to chat to them. And I learned a lot from how to talk to them and learned a bit about the language of drug use Um, so that I could listen to the clients and understand what they were telling me. But having, and we often had three or four people in the room having the conversation with the clients about what they wanted to do and what their options were. So I sort of went to the view, particularly with buprenorphine, that um, any buprenorphine is better than no buprenorphine for someone who's trying to get off opioids or be safe from opioids and that made it much easier to say to the clients well and you can't it's not like an anaesthetised patient where you just give what you want to give Um, it all depends on client engagement they have to decide they want to have the dose of the pharmacotherapy you can't there's no point in telling someone what they're going to get so I was, I found it very comfortable to largely give the clients information, ask them what they wanted me to give them. Uh, and that seemed to be really well accepted. And I think they, to allow them that agency and a measure of control, um, made them feel much better about the treatment than if I were the doctor saying, this is what you're going to get. Um, and I, I think you know. So often, I, I remember um, I was anaesthetising someone for ECT, and she was quite young and had done a lot of self harm, and she'd had a lot of terrible things happen to her in life. And she had perfectly fine veins, um, and I was going to get putting in the needle to give her the anaesthetic for electroconvulsive therapy. And she was absolutely specific about which vein on the back of the hand I should use. And as soon as she was asleep, the psychiatrist who was doing the said to me, it gave this sort of interpretation of it, that, please, doctor, could I just have control over something in my life? And I think it was a beautiful therapeutic insight that that psychiatrist had for that girl and I think a lot of the clients in the injector room are like that. There's so many things that they don't have control over. Uh, to allow them control over their pharmacotherapy uh, is a really big step forward. It makes them feel much better about having it.
0: Absolutely. And you mentioned um, prescribers and you know, the two approaches to take. And sometimes it's our own fears as well. Like with buprenorphine, as you mentioned, uh, as opposed to methadone, it's, it's, it's one of those drugs where a, a lot of patients... Do have their own preferences and their own uh i guess uh goals around treatment as well as what they'd like to start on and i think particularly with buprenorphine um i, I know my practice has changed where i'm a bit more willing to, to 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 meet with the patient in terms of what their treatment goals are particularly around around buprenorphine. because like you i'm i'm also of the view that some buprenorphine in your system is better than no buprenorphine in your system and i, I think that does help the therapeutic. um Process, particularly with all the buprenorphine products we have available.
1: Yeah, and and I think it's I found it fascinating the extent to which the clients wanted to titrate their titrate their treatment to the effect that they wanted, and you know some people wanted a weekly dose of Buvidal, and they wanted that because, and they chose their dose so that they could use for a couple of days and then they'd have another dose of treatment and be you know, not use heroin for a week, and then they might use for a couple of days, and they'd time the doses to fit in with what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Now, I could take the view, well, you've got to come in weekly or you know, you're not engaged in treatment, but that's being really doctor-centric about it. It's not being client-focused. Mm-hmm. And the client's much better to engage on that basis where they're just going to use a little bit in between their doses of buprenorphine than to not engage at all and not have treatment. Um, And other people found that it was, you know, they'd choose a level where they really could use if they took quite a lot of heroin if they wanted to, but were so satisfied that they didn't need to. Um, And some just like, some would continue to use Purely for the social uh, aspect of coming to the injecting room, even though they knew they were wasting their money, um, they would come and inject with friends. You know, just the same as you see all the smokers standing out the front of the building having a smoke together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard for people to completely disengage if a lot of their social contacts inject drugs. To all of a sudden become the person who doesn't inject drugs anymore. It's like going to the apartment and being the person who doesn't drink at all. Yeah. It's it's really difficult. So I think to allow the clients, that agency, to make their own decisions about what level of treatment they want is a really important step. And quite a lot do go through that process and then decide, well, this is a waste of time, I'm not going to inject it anymore and I've got a job, so you know, I'll, I'll have a bit more or I'll come a bit more regularly. Yeah, uh, But they, they work out their own timing.
0: And I guess uh, your experience kind of mirrors um, my experience as well in terms of what patients will tell you. A lot of colleagues have told me, um, how can you be sure that what your patient is telling you is the truth? Uh, don't people who use drugs lie all the time? Um, uh, so how can you take um, the word of, of your patient um, and, and have this kind of interaction? Um, I usually react quite negatively when, when those kind of comments are made. Uh, what's what's your approach with, with your interactions with your patients and this, and this thought of people use drugs as being liars in general?
1: I think that's something we've all been brought up with at medical school. But my view is that you only, people only tell lies if you make them tell lies. And so if they're not feeling the need to say, no, I haven't been using it all, if they know it's okay to say they've been say what they've been using and how often they've been using, then they can tell you. There, there's, there's no adverse adverse consequence from telling you. So if the level of trust is that they are comfortable to tell you, then they will tell you. And I think if I think for the doctors who say drug addicts tell lies, I think the right thing is for those doctors to look in a mirror um, and reflect on their approach to consulting with these clients um, and make sure that they ask questions and behave in a way that allows the clients to tell them the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's a a trivial uh, analogy, but uh, as my kids were growing up, a lot of people have the idea that, you know, curfew, they've got to be home by this time. They must be home by 10 o'clock, must be home by 11 o'clock, must be home by midnight. whatever. Well, of course, if the, kid, if the child wants to stay, well, we couldn't get a taxi, or someone offered me a lift home, but they'd been drinking. Uh, there are all sorts of reasons why they mightn't be able to come home. My view was, I will come and get you at any time. You know how long it'll take me to drive there. Uh, I'll just come and ring me when you want me to come and pick you up. So I didn't ask them to tell lies, so I'd pick them up and usually pick up a, number, a couple of, the, of children too. And you know it was pretty obvious who'd been drinking and who hadn't been drinking, and they'd had had the truth serum, so you learnt what went on at the party. Uh, but if I was the proper parent who said you must be home by midnight, all I was doing is making the child tell lies. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that the it may be a trivial analogy that you edit out, but I think if the if the if the clients are telling lies to the doctors, the doctors need to think about how they're asking the
0: questions. No, I, I think that's perfect. And we'll definitely keep that in. But one of the uh, one of the final questions, I guess I wanted to ask you was the, the supervised injecting room gets a lot of bad press. And even amongst people who say support in in principle places like the, the supervised injecting room, I think um, one of the, the, the things I hear about is I, I support it, I just don't want it anywhere near me. Uh, what is your um, argument i guess for supervised consumption rooms of drugs and and the need for, the, for for these places
1: well i think that the 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 reason for having supervised consumption rooms is because they save lives and that's been well recognised over a long period of time i think that the if i recall history correctly the sydney injecting room really got established because of anxiety that the drug injecting community were going to spread hepatitis c Sorry, it spread HIV into the rest of the community, the the heterosexual non-injecting drug use community. They, that was going to be the portal for HIV to get into that community. And that's why it had general community support, because only people were scared of HIV. The, the general community isn't as scared, perhaps, of hepatitis C as we should be, uh, although now there's treatment available. So... Injecting rooms are a good idea because one, they save lives, but two, they're a bit of a Trojan horse getting health care into people who inject drugs. In Richmond, the pharmacotherapy service provides access to a service that most of the clients just can't otherwise get because most drug services require people to make make appointments, not be intoxicated when they go there, Uh, and be able to keep appointments and often pay. So those things all mitigate against them being a portal for people to start pharmacotherapy. Um, The hepatitis C testing and treatment. Uh, The injecting room's a massive treater of hepatitis C now because we've got point-of-care testing, or they have point-of-care testing. I'm I'm no longer there, um, and they can't get into trouble for me talking about them. There are all sorts of medical services that people get because there's a clinic attached to the injecting room at Richmond. So I think it's great from that point of view. The other arguments that people say, well, it shouldn't be there, it shouldn't be near the primary school, it's bad for the Victoria Street traders because people come there. Well, firstly you know, it's beside the primary school because that's where the primary school kids found the bodies of people who'd overdosed at night. That's where people use drugs. We know that people inject drugs you know, within an hour, often within 10 minutes of buying them. Um, you know, people buy alcohol and consume it the same day. People buy drugs and consume it in the next 10 minutes. Uh, that's where the drug dealing is around all that public housing there. So if people don't want as much traffic there, the way to fix it is to have more small injecting rooms around the other centres of drug use. So around the CBD, it'd be good. Footscray, it'd be good. Dandenong, St Kilda, and probably Frankston um, would be good sites to have injecting rooms so that people who live in other areas but want to come and inject safely don't all have to go to Richmond to do it. Um, have smaller injecting rooms with the associated services so that they can also test for hepatitis so that they can also have a clinic to get people on pharmacotherapy who want it Uh, and that it's just the local people who are using drugs anyway go to the injecting room, not people coming in by train uh, to go to Richmond to inject. So it's, you know, There's all sorts of things people want but not in their backyard and the injecting room is one of them, but by having a number of smaller injecting rooms, I think would reduce the community impact and also improve the community value uh, in helping people who are injecting drugs get the help they need. Mm -hmm.
0: And Tony, this has been a a great and far-ranging conversation But to to wrap up, and I'll I'll give you the final word, is there a message you'd like our our listeners and viewers to take home from this conversation if if there was uh, a particular take-home message that you you have?
1: I think the first thing is I'm I'm going to give you more than one message. The first one is don't be frightened of people who inject drugs. They're not bad people who are going to harm you. They're people who are injecting drugs and they start injecting drugs for a reason, and they're often complex reasons, Uh, If the community doesn't want people to inject drugs, we need to be a better, kinder and more inclusive society where we don't marginalise people, where we provide people with houses, where we let them get away from violent relationships uh, and where we have children being properly looked after uh, if we don't want people to start injecting drugs. And if we want to help people get off drugs, then we need to provide the services that engage with them. So injecting rooms are a great start. I say, they're that Trojan horse of getting healthcare into people who inject drugs.
0: Indeed. And I think that's, that's a really great place to wrap up this episode. I'd like to thank you very much for your time, Tony. And to our listeners and viewers, thanks for joining us on another episode of Cracking Addiction. Please, again, do remember to like and subscribe to the podcast and YouTube channel. And bye for now.